Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're discussing Sansa 3 and Eddard 12 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. How's it going? It's pretty good, man. It's pretty good. The book's getting hot, 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 man. Yeah, this is a fun, fun couple of chapters here. We've got some exciting moments and uh, uh, some victory laps for you to take, I think. Yeah, I think so. I've been patting myself on the back all week. I thought you might be. Uh, I'm glad you didn't text me because it's going to be annoying enough hearing it on the podcast. Yeah, I figured I, I wanted to really save it for here. Yeah, that's uh, that's reasonable. We'll we'll get into it as we go through things. I actually wanted to. This is going to be a quick couple of chapters. I wanted to touch on something from last week quickly before we got into things. Let's maybe do it. try and take your self-congratulatory nature down. No, 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 Dan. As the that's the true king of thrones. Me, I'm here to answer your questions. Go ahead, Dan. What do you need? I know you've read this a couple times, but I now clearly am the king. Yeah, of the no, game I want your answers on these questions. So the last chapter we read last week obviously was a big one. Ned sitting in court deals with the situation with the villagers from the Riverlands and ends up sending men under the king's banner to go arrest and execute and bring to justice Sir Gregor Clegane, uh, one of the Lannister's big captains, uh, one of their military guys for the action that he took. We get some more info about the response to that here. But one side of things that we did not discuss last week was Catelyn. Mm. You have been talking for a lot of this book about Catelyn's mistake in seizing Tyrion and how that was going to prompt violence, how that was a dumb move. And part of my pushback earlier in the book came from the perspective of she knows her husband is hand of the king. He is number two in terms of power. He mm -hmm. is sitting in that position. She got put into a corner by the fluke luck of running into Tyrion in that inn, made a split second decision based on the assumption my husband is in power. He will be able to utilize that power and his connection to the throne to protect us. Now, that ended up not being the case off the bat for two reasons. One, Robert is Robert, which was not forefront of her mind. Right. Uh, whether or not that's something she knows clearly, she hasn't had a ton of experience with him, putting that aside. But the second one was, again, a fluke. Ned and Robert had argued that morning, and Ned quit. Uh, that's just some crappy timing. And then JB comes and kicks the crap out of him. Last week, what we had was Ned back in the position of power and utilizing that political power to put forward stark interests effectively. Whether or not Robert is going to like that, that's what he did. He sent out people under the king's banner to go take down the Lannisters for the violent actions they were taking in response to Tyrion's arrest. That seems like Catelyn had the lay of the land pretty correct there. Ned is in a position to make sure that this action is seen for what I think it is, which is an expression of justice, an act against somebody who I believe I have evidence committed crimes, turned out not going that way, but regardless. And he will be able to backstop that with the king's authority, with the throne, to ensure that it does not go astray into a squabble between houses. What are your thoughts? 
Well, Dan, I understand that you have this sophomoric perspective on a pretty deep and, and intricate. Uh, Coming out firing. Okay, I just tell I me more about how dumb right now. Uh, no, okay. So you know what? I think I think all of this is fair. However, I think the thing that you're leaving out, and the reason that I stand by what I've been saying about Catelyn and the Starks, like in general, and for all of this, is that. There's a lot that Catelyn and and now Ned are banking on Robert being a fair-minded and king-oriented human. So everything Ned just did in the last chapter that we read, right, like on the throne, mm -hmm. in the authority of Hand of the King, there's an expectation that as Hand of the King the king understands that this man ned is going to you know do things with authority and everything that he did seems pretty just if you will right with that said i think that we've seen time and time again and let's just say let's go back to the dire wolf biting uh biting joffrey right like right. like the king is not acting as a king and not acting as a politician he's acting like an oaf and he's sort of just letting himself be pushed by whoever has the strongest arm who's closest to him in that moment. So it's not that he's following his heart. It's not that he's following what he thinks is most just. He, his his real theme, his mantra seems to be, you deal with it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't trust. Let's leave aside, you know, we touched on this at the very end of last episode. Leave aside, like, the upcoming spoiler that I am already aware of. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I know what's about to happen in the next few chapters. It was a huge part of this first season of the Game of Thrones. It made ripples. You know, it, it shake, shook the earth of what happens in TV dramas. And presumably that's because this is what happened in the book. But with that said, I think that let's, let's assume, right, that in the next few chapters that we read at some point, King Robert comes back. And basically turns to Ned and says, what have you done? Mm -hmm. You've started a war with my queen's family. You, you think that will be his response, though? Now, I, I agree with you in terms of Robert's motivations and what it is that's moving him. And it's not, Ned, you did the right thing. That was just. But this is Ned making an actual power play for once. And from that perspective, I, don't get me wrong. Ned is acting from a sense of honor and justice. But it is a... Uh, real politic move that he made. And I commend him for it. This is this is the one time we've seen, I mean, we've had so many critiques for how he plays the game of politics, but is Robert even going to be able to, is he going to feel like he's able to come back and say, yeah, I didn't sign off on that. Sorry, Cersei, sorry, Lannisters, everything's cool, pull it back. I mean, that's not really a move that's available to him. No, but he's Robert... going to have to go with it. Yeah, but Robert capitulates all the time. He's constantly saying, let's, let's, you know, speak boldly first and then follow it up by just sort of like kowtowing down to everybody. I, I think that like, like just looking at facts and numbers for a second, right? Like the kingdom owes Lannisters tons of money. The Lannisters are well and strategically- All the more reason to go kick the crap out of them. Like- that's fine. If you Robert know, kills all the Lannisters, the throne doesn't owe the Lannisters any money anymore. I think the problem is, is that Ned gets to sit on the throne in the absence of the king. But when the king sits on the throne, he seems to be kind of a hand puppet for Lannisters for the most part. Uh, I think that 
and and I think in his absence previously, the Lannisters have taken great, you know, advantage of his absence in times as well. You know, not saying right. Cersei, but but I think the fact is is that like if if Robert comes back to find that the situation is going to pot, right, because of Ned's choices, I think that the solution is for Robert to sit on the throne and to start, you know, doing the politic that is let's let whatever the policies of Lannisters are come to the front. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I mean, we're just going to have to disagree on that one and, and keep moving because I, I really, based on what we've seen from Robert as a character so far, mm-hmm. it seems much more likely to me, and I realize this is just a place of disagreement, that he comes back and Cersei says, look at what your idiot hand did. Fuck that guy. You should execute him. And Ned says, yes, here's what I did and why. Robert seems much more likely to get stubborn and say, woman, how dare you question the action of the throne. In fact, I'm going to pick up my hammer and go out there and help them kick the crap out of your family. And you're going to sit here in a dungeon until I come back and decide what to do with you. That yeah, seems but, much more in line with his personality to me. Yeah, that seems like what he, he and I know we we want to move into it, right? But I, I yeah, do no, think that rush. Robert's character over and over again has been a lot more bluster than bite. And I think that he would come back and say that at first. And then I think Cersei would... If Cersei or some extension of the Lannister would sit him down and explain to him in simple language what needs to happen. I, I don't, okay. yeah. you know what I mean? Like, like here's what they, we do to you if you keep pushing this direction. Yeah, exactly. And he can, you know, like buck and bark all that he wants, but it just seems like the Lannisters are just have just been thinking politically much longer than Robert has. And that's for sure. Ned hasn't been present long enough to like face and deal with it. Yeah. Also, right, question. That's fair. Just, yes. just just about something that you said, but like Ned's actions as the hand of the king didn't seem particularly biased towards Stark interests to me. It, 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 he seemed to be trying to act the in the just way that he would want a king to act. Right. Yeah. It seems like witnesses pointed at that. I wasn't sure if I was missing something or. If no, you you're not. That. You're not. And I think that's correct. We saw that scene from Ned's head. And I think that's the way he would think about it. I don't think right. he would ever think of himself as doing something with the throne's authority solely in the pursuit of Stark interests. But from the perspective that he is going at it with Cersei, Jamie just killed his men, Catelyn took Tyrion, we've got a brewing situation, Stark versus Lannister, that caused the attacks on Tully lands because of their relationship to Starks. Mm-hmm. Sending men under the crown's authority to go take in one of the Lannister's military commanders is very much so in service of Stark ends, whether or not Ned is thinking about it. That fair. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Okay, totally fair. And and I meant it more from like an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the way all of the political players will look at it. The people who are thinking in terms of politics will see this as solely a power play by the Starks, gotcha. whether or not Ned himself thinks of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I, I I totally get that. Yeah, that's all I mean. All right. I, I just wanted to get into that. I, you know, I was listening during editing, and uh, we definitely got into a lot of the important things last week. But it occurred to me that was a question I wanted to ask you and uh, see how you felt about it. Maybe Listen, we I get, get a little as forgiveness the, for Kat. As basically the god of thrones now, I'm happy to to be here for you, Dan, and explain to you these, oh the minutia of this story. You know what happens when you play the God of Thrones. Uh, Everyone worships you. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, by the way, it's not lost. I mean, we're not on this chapter yet, but the next chapter that we're about to talk about, uh, they say Game of Thrones. And I'm like, ooh, a Game of Thrones. What? (laughs) 
It's always good when you get the name of the thing. In love the thing. it. Gotta love it. Yeah. Flashing light. With that said, Take Sansa, Sansa, Sansa 3. three. Uh, okay, let me start by saying Sansa continues to be the most boring character in this whole book. <laughs> oh, I uh, love this chapter. I love this chapter. We're going to get into it. I actually, I love all these chapters and this chapter is really sweet. I, I think that from a high level and a quick sort of summary of the chapter, uh, I don't, not a lot no. happen happens, but a yeah. lot happens. <laughs> uh, that's fair i get what you mean you know uh so i i think this whole chapter takes place like across a breakfast table i don't think it, or, or something like that like, like yeah like, it's like it's like a 24 hour period i think we've kind of got like a dinner and then a night and then a morning oh i see and, and but for for what it's worth we, we jump head first into it and there is this i i i wanted to try it's weird i want to say two things at the same time per normal <laughs> uh Sansa is continues to be fully invested in her sort of fairy tale understanding of the world. Yeah. She, this is her her chapter is really her reflecting on what she's seen her father do at court. Uh specifically what we were just talking about. She's she's really ta- talking about and talking through what she watched, but but she really she kind of starts with and and, and stays fixated on, you know, why why didn't he send Sir Loras? Yeah. You know, and her reasoning for wanting to censor Loris is because he kind of looks the part of, of yeah. a hero. So I love that. This is what I love about this chapter. It's throughout the chapter and it starts so strongly on this Loris Tyrell situation. But it feels to me like Sansa is clinging to the shreds of her worldview at this point, her rose-colored glasses. She feels to me, being in her head, it feels like she is grasping for something that on a subconscious level she can tell isn't real and is falling apart Mm. and we got it somewhat in her first two chapters it was sprinkled throughout the way she sees the world the way she thinks about things here we keep getting these quotes that are this is how it works in the songs and we simultaneously get little acknowledgments that that's not how it works in reality that's not the way her life is going and she refuses to accept them and instead keeps saying, no, this is the way it should be. This is the nice thing that should happen. And that undercurrent of she can kind of tell what's going wrong, but is refusing to confront it is such a fascinating thing from the point of view structure where we're literally going through that with her. Mm. And if you're reading it on a purely surface level, you have, oh, silly girl doesn't really know what's happening, uh, doesn't pay any attention to what's there. And I, I think on some level she is she's old enough and she's picking up on it and she's rejecting it i think i kept thinking about that line that you had pointed out from a chapter way earlier when she was kind of on her first date with joffrey and they get in a spat joffrey and aria get in that spat mm-hmm. and she keeps saying you're spoiling it you're spoiling it and that's right that's kind of i find her really like leading into that and and, and it's funny because i said when i first started talking about this chapter right like there's two things I want to say at once. One is her desperation to keep the storybook front and center of what's happening in her life. And the other is she also seems to be maturing a little bit, but sort of in a weird way. She's maturing as a, a desired storybook character for herself, much more mm-hmm. than she's sort of, and we actually see, we'll get to it in a minute, but like uh, we see Arya showing some real maturation <laughs> uh, yes. in a realistic way, whereas we're not really seeing it from Sansa. Yeah, although I'm a little curious about that from Arya, but we'll get to that. We but will get to that. The Loris Tyrell situation is so great. I mean, we have had, I don't know if you remember this, but from the tournament, Sansa already kind of had a crush on him. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, when he gave her the uh, 
the flower when he crowned her the queen of love and beauty and gave mm. her the flower uh and so here this you know she really is this is the stories the handsome people are the good people and the ugly people are the bad people she'd been so sure she'd been sure she was about to see one of old nan's stories come to life sir gregor was the monster and sir loris the true hero who would slay him he even looked a true hero so slim and beautiful with golden roses around his slender waist and his rich brown hair tumbling down into his eyes and my thought when i read that was you last week saying loris is this little pipsqueak 16 year old who's trying to volunteer and he's going to get the crap kicked out of him by the mountain it's such a nice little moment where like yeah the the boy you think is really pretty might not be the best guy for the job here just because he's pretty well i like actually further down that same page sansa is reflecting on the fact that beric dondarian was sent and he's handsome enough but was awfully old almost 22. i didn't uh, like that as much and i was like oh my god <laughs> that hurts my feelings <laughs> it's really rude okay but with that said uh this chapter kicks off with sansa kind of really kind of recounting what's going on and i think that there's a part of and and I, I feel like people are going to send hate mail for the next comment I'm going to make. But like, uh -oh. there's a part of what she's thinking and going through that strikes me as really wonderfully young girl-like, mm -hmm. which is, I know the answers. Like, father, I shouldn't really be questioning father, but he should really be listening to my counsel about these things. Like, I know. Oh, yeah. it. And I just thought I it was perfectly that. done that way and so nice. I'll say... Uh, you know, as she's kind of thinking about this and she's talking with Jane Poole at the same time, who's present, we've talked about her before. She's kind of a nobody character at this point. Um, but she kind of mentions like, man, I guess I shouldn't really like question my my father's decisions, but Lord Baelish is there as well somehow. Uh, yeah, I actually got a little confused by the timeline of events on this too. I think she's telling Jane Poole about things like at dinner and mm -hmm. thinks back on raising the same questions about Ned's judgment as she was walking out and Baelish oh, kind of over so okay. she's like complaining to Septimore Dane why would he say no to Sir Loris and Baelish overhears and then comes and gets involved I, that's okay what I so he's not like as yeah. present present I thought like somehow yeah. he was having dinner with them or something I was like oh, no this is like a flashback moment got it but so and and, and so to that point so she was so to say it again right this chapter starts with from Sansa really reflecting on the decisions that have been made by her father as Hand of the King with what just happened with Gregor Kane and uh and who he sent and who he didn't she really wants the storybook to be true she wants her uh loris tyrell to to be the hero because he looks the mm -hmm. part and she thinks to herself i really shouldn't be questioning my father's decisions and then follows that with sort of this reminiscent like conversation with lord baelish where he says well maybe some of your father's decisions could do with a little more questioning mm -hmm. um she mentions in this flashback as well that he he bowed down so deep that she wasn't quite sure if she was being complimented or mocked, which right. I think seems to be token Baelish at this point. Like nobody Yeah, that's that's right on brand for him. Uh he also has a line to her that I really like here, where he asks her why she thinks he should have accepted Loris Tyrell. Uh and presumably he's thinking of something along the lines of what Varys was, you know, make friends, have an ally or whatever. Mm -hmm. But she explains monsters and heroes and all that. And she's he's like, okay, well, that's a little silly. Uh, and he says to her, Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. So that's like the first lead-in, along with the description of Loris as this beautiful hero out of the stories, to that theme that I was talking about that I think keeps yeah. popping up throughout this chapter. I mean, that is such a core part of what we've been talking about with Sansa it is really interesting to hear that coming from 
Baelish, who is, you know, such a sarcastic character, you can't even imagine him as the starry-eyed, song-loving, story-loving person. But at the same time, we know his background was fallen in love with the daughter of the really important lord who's putting him up and trying to challenge for her hand her much bigger boyfriend and getting your ass kicked. So maybe that was his learning life is not a song moment. I'll add too that, and, and we'll see this more as we get to the end of this chapter and actually even more so in the next chapter, but we, and especially I, uh, kind of mock Sansa for her sort of basic perceptions of things and this sort of caricature-ish uh, projection of the, the people around her. But there's a value to that. Sometimes the sort of the 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 broad brushing of what's happening helps things seem a little or helps clear things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take out some of that personal minutia of, you know, what's the point of this or what's what what's their motivation behind this? And it becomes, hey, who is this character? How do I understand this character? Uh, there's a little more insight that can come. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, and again, we'll get to it a little bit later. Where, where I think this really rears its head again. But um, we have, you know, so, so Baelish is here kind of sharing exactly what you said, and I underlined it too. Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. Foreshadow. But with that said, uh, Sansa, you know, basically it, it, it continues in the same vein where she was. She's still talking with Jane Poole. And, uh, and, and Jane actually brings up, like, he should have, you know, Ned should have sent Sir Illyn the, mm-hmm. the, the king's justice, right? Because it's his job to do this. And, uh, you know, basically she she refers to him as, Sansa says like, well, he's just another monster anyway. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad Ned didn't send him. Yeah, which I thought was interesting too, because again, like she's so deeply rooted into this perspective of stories, like to the extent that even who should be sent is not included there. She's defining who's a monster and who's not. Based a lot on looks. (laughs) Yeah, it's based on looks, but you also have, think back to when we first met Sir Illyn in Sansa 1, and she kind of started when she saw him and was afraid of him. And the response from, I think it was Sander Clegane was like, yeah, he scares me too. Like, this is, it's looks with Sir Illyn, but it's also kind of vibes, and she's picking up on something that is deeply off-putting about this guy. Well, he is a freak. Uh, (laughs) I... But with that said, this conversation continues. Uh, eventually, Sansa changes it just a little bit, uh, and she brings up Joffrey. She says she has a dream about Joffrey Daniel, which I just think mm-hmm. is cute. Yeah, it's a uh, well. She didn't have an actual dream. No, it wasn't um, really a dream at all. I thought this was great. She, you know, she wanted to say that she hoped these things about Joffrey, and instead changed it to "I dreamt it" because she knows that that's prophetic, and people put stock in dreams. So she's going to make one up so people will believe it's going to come true, um, which is such a wonderful little indictment of prophecy and uh, f- not foreshadowing, for for forethought. Foreplay. No. Uh, <laughs> but, but I just think it's such a great little moment of, of like a charlatan. I, I just finished reading a graphic novel by Alan Moore called From Hell, uh, which is about mm. the Jack the Ripper murders. I've heard of that. I haven't read that. Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it, but it opens with two men discussing, and one of them, um, they're older, it's years later, and one of them is a, what's the word I'm looking for? 
agent. Like a fortune teller, effectively, fortune teller. Uh, who like worked with the Queen of England or something. And he confesses in this, he made all of his predictions up. He would fake convulsions and act like he was having a seizure and then make it up. Uh, and then for some reason, they kept coming true anyway. <laughs> Which, yeah. he was he was wildly concerned about but it kept happening and it made him famous so like all right so be it uh, <laughs> that's phenomenal that's what i was thinking of in this moment though but with that said sansa says she has a dream really it's a hope but she's saying that she dreamt that joffrey is the one who captures and or who kills the white heart that that's happening mm -hmm. on this hunt she reminds us that this hunt is happening uh joffrey is one of the people out there jane Poole kind of says oh dream really did did Joffrey just in this dream just put his hand on the stag and he he died that way? Uh, because apparently that's a lot of what the stories have. I don't think the stories have them dying. I think it's just you touch them and they like come to you and hang out like a Dr. Doolittle sort of oh. <laughs> Disney princess hanging out with the animals situation. Sansa's grounded enough to say no, he shot the deer. Joffrey loves killing, like loves hunting, especially the killing part. Yeah, this is the first instance of several that we see which is really what i was talking about mm -hmm. where she is trying to reframe the things that she has realized on some deep level about joffrey the things she knows about him into something that fits her song version he is handsome he is pretty he is the prince this is who's supposed to be good but no joffrey would never greet the animal and love it and Touch sing it a song with nose. it <laughs> he would kill it that's what he would do so okay he does it with a golden arrow and he brings it back to me because he loves me so much it's like no he killed it because he uh -huh. likes killing things and that's very different than what you're imagining along the same lines of what you're saying within the same breath to herself she also is saying that you know she understands that her father's angry at lannisters but it's not fair to be angry at joffrey he wasn't there to you know mm -hmm. kill you know, to to attack Ned and and to do these awful things. That was Jamie, not wonderful, pure, uh, pure Joffrey. And I wonder, part of me wonders if there, and it's not really shared or said here, but wonders if she's trying to convince herself at this point to a certain extent. Yeah, you know, she's trying to like really sing the song to herself in a like like admitting certain admittances, right? Like he does like to kill things. He does, but saying no, no, no. But he's still pure of heart in certain ways, and and. Yeah, you know, you know who I think of when I think of Joffrey in these early Sansa scenes where he's mostly but not entirely being nice and playing the part is like Tom Cruise, where you just mm. have these <laughs> flashes of moments where there's nothing behind the eyes and she can kind of see that there's like a sociopath there that she should be worried about. But she's still pretending like, no, he's nice, he laughs, he, or we have fun together, he's the good guy. Like, She's thought in previous chapters, I hate Cersei, I hate Jamie, these other people, the, the rotten, drunken king is awful, but Joffrey's the good one. And there does seem to be a little bit of self-protection going on in that. Uh, the conversation moves forward. Jane blurts out that she saw her sister, Arya, Sansa's sister, Arya, uh, walking through the stables on her hands. Which uh, is super impressive. Pretty cool, although Sansa turns around and says, this yeah aria is a wacko basically <laughs> who would want to be in a stable it smells it's gross it's awful i uh, and in fact this actually transitions very quickly to like going back to her sansa talking to jane about court and what she's seen and she actually brings up uh someone from the night's watch who was there mm -hmm. uh we we find out pretty quick that it's yorin who we've met yeah. before a few times we don't get a name, but we do get that the guy is super smelly. So we just can assume. It says his name. 
Oh, it does. Okay, it does. It's like a, <laughs> I assumed. It's smelly a, yeah, guy. It must be urine. Anyway, but here it is. It's urine, and he's he's beaten the same drum that's been beaten several times by the Night's Watch as they come away from the Night's Watch. They're, they need men, uh, and there's this wonderful this wonderful moment that happens as Sansa describes it from the court situation, where here you have Yorin saying, you know, to the hand of the king who's sitting on the throne, we need men. And Ned looks around and says, who here will honor their families by committing people to the Night's Watch? Yeah. To absolute crickets. And <laughs> no one wants that. To which he, uh, Ned turns to turns to Yorin and says, you can go ahead and look through the, the prison, basically. Go through the king's yeah. prison and choose who you'd like. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we talk all the time about Ned's honor, and it makes sense that he would be the character saying, knights of the court who wants to go for the honor. Uh, but clearly he knows also, and you have to think it's probably not helping the Night's Watch's PR in terms of convincing knights to volunteer and join like you know if there's any waymar royce in the audience who happens to decide okay i'm like a third or fourth son i'm just gonna go do it uh it's probably not helpful that he then says all right no knights nobody looking for honor okay go get the murderers out of the dungeons right. you can have them instead it seems to be like the joke that everybody knows right it's the pun like everybody's acting the part that this is an honorable honorable thing but really people know it's a bunch it's of a penal colony and, yeah exactly uh, there is this sort of wonderful, again, back to Sansa's like storytelling to herself. Uh, you know, she's reflecting on this gross Night's Watchman, basically, who's there. Mm -hmm. And the contrast of him against Benjen, who is always so together and so so you know, sharp, if you will. Uh, and she has this moment of reflection on John as well. She thinks to herself, if this is what the Night's Watch was truly like, she felt bad for her bastard half-brother, John. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, it, it leans into her own fantasy storytelling from both ways, right? Like that gross bastard half brother. Yeah. You know, and then at the same time, like and, and it's almost like one thing confirms the other. OK, maybe these are it's not the story, the fairy tale of who I think the Night's Watch is. It is gross. No wonder my bastard, you know, brother is there. I'm sure that if she had seen a really beautiful, young, strong man in the black who was there she'd be like what an honor that my brother john is there you know yeah, it's like no, that's kind of leaning into whatever's useful to her yeah yeah i feel bad for him but it doesn't reflect on me in any way like right that. exactly and then i'll say as she uh concludes her thoughts uh oh, i'm sorry she this is not just thoughts she's actually telling it to jane but uh she you know this moment of the of the night's watchman yorin passes and she mentions that two brothers came before ned uh the hand of the king free riders from the dornish marches dornish marches uh, and pledge their swords to the service of the king. I just wanted to mark it because we were talking about Dorn just a chapter mm -hmm. or two ago. I didn't think anything of it. It didn't yeah. seem to stand out. No, it's, it's, just it's good to Dorne. see moments when they it kind of shows up. It's kind of salted through the narrative here. Uh, and uh, good to pay attention when it arrives. Well, that's it that really rounds out the moment for Sansa talking about court with Jane. And in fact, she kind of goes to sleep. We wait, we follow her the next into the next paragraph, basically waking up to watch uh, at first light to sleepily watch Lord Beric form up and start riding out with the men to mm -hmm. go after uh, Gregor Clegane. Uh, and she, she uh, this is like, like you've said, this is our man for some reason. Uh, yeah. But, you know, she basically like he, it looks pretty cool. And that's what she's here for. Uh, it, it, she loves the sigils that she's saying. She loves his sigil. It was all so exciting. It was a song coming to life. 
Uh, and it's it's sort of fun to watch her kind of like charge her battery on her storytelling this way. Yeah, oh, you know, I love she's that. just like stoked on it. She, so it's like, okay, like yesterday, everything that happened at court or whenever it was, like, well, that was a little deflating. It shouldn't have happened though. But now she wakes up, she's like, yes, and they're riding off at a daybreak into the wonder that is out. You know what I mean? They're gonna do God's work. Yeah, I love the prose here because you can really see why she's so excited about it and frankly why on a broader level the society sees the glory Mm. in this world we've seen so much of the violence and the blood and guts and dirt of the fighting and here you have the flip side of that the thing that you can put on the pamphlets and the posters and recruit people with uh and it's real you know these are both real aspects of it one is trying to mask the other but it was all so exciting. A song come to life. The clatter of swords, the flicker of torchlight, banners dancing in the wind, horses, horses snorting and whinnying, the golden glow of sunrise slanting through the bars of the portcullis as it jerked upward. Like, I, you can see that, and I get why that would excite her. That would be very interesting. She doesn't want to, and the society tries to shield her from seeing the fight that's going to happen, where a bunch of these men are going to die, and there will be violence, and people won't make it home, or, you know, there will be her horrific acts committed potentially or burning down a hold fast with all the villagers inside but this side of things this is exciting this is the thing you write songs about that makes perfect sense to me it's funny again i'm going to keep bringing up throughout this chapter this idea of duality right because a lot of what this entire book has been about is that it's not just a song you know and it's you know what what is the series called a song of a song of ice and fire yeah right like like, and it, it kind of, right, it will become its own song, but a lot of what we've seen is like, man, these songs don't do justice to the actual knit and grit of the situation. But then the opposite is true as well. The dirtiness of these situations is what leads to song, you know, and and it, it one can't happen without the other. Yeah, And I, I think, think it's just great. interesting through her eyes, you know, we're seeing it through a very singular perspective. I think it really actually hits home. In, in fact, the next breath that she has in this moment where she sees uh uh who is it alan the alan, one who's yeah. replacing jory basically carrying the stark sigil uh and the stark banner and she basically you know not she's not pining and mourning jory she's saying man alan is a way better looking dude than jory yeah it's funny too i wonder and i didn't really think this when i was reading it but i wonder now if i i don't know if i'm this is gonna make any sense or be close to the truth at all but like I wonder if George R. R. Martin had a little bit of like sort of like bashful, you know, hesitation of writing too much pubescent sexuality. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, yeah. like, why does she feel this way about everything? Like, she's really discovering herself in this moment. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of has a little bit of those vibes, you know, from a number perspective. She's a little young for that. And it certainly doesn't get sexual in nature. But there's a lot of I like this guy because he's pretty, uh, which I think is, you know, real for young people, you know, regardless of whether they've reached puberty and regardless of whether they're boys yeah. or girls or, or any of that. But there is so much of this uh, reflection. It's also a part of, you know, her view of the world through the songs is literally surface level in this way. Uh, she is looking at what people look like and not past that. With that said, now these folks all leave to go on their mission. And she kind of mentions that uh, with them all gone, the Tower of the Hammond's pretty empty at this point. And it's so empty that she's actually excited to see her sister, Arya, uh, for <laughs> Very a little briefly. bit of hu- hu- human contact. Yeah, I just want to briefly single out that line once again as her kind of seeing the cracks. She's so excited to see the Winterfell men in their shining white armor and with the sigil and all of that. And Alan looks great riding out. But now they're gone. 
and now there are fewer guards around and so it's just a little bit more of I'm going to focus on the shiny aspect and try and not maybe not pay attention to right. what I'm noticing underneath right uh there's this great foil that happens between Arya and Sansa right now as you know basically you know uh Arya says like where is everybody and wants to know if uh, yeah, she missed everything that happened. <laughs> literally missed everything. And then she says, uh, "Did father? Did father send them to hunt down Jamie Lannister?" And there's this great back and forth where Sansa, you know, is now kind of again flipping in her own mind whatever's going on and saying, "No, no, no, no! Don't be ridiculous! Why would he hunt down Jamie Lannister? He's doing the duty of the hand of the king." And they said, "And mm-hmm. Arya is all business." She's like, "What do you mean?" What what is that gross nonsense? Didn't Jamie Lannister murder Jory? Like, yeah. like, why are we not taking this as personally as possible? <laughs> like, and I just think that's a wonderful. Uh, like, like they both play off each other so well with those sort of attitudes. It's a fun contrast with Sansa. It's also a fun contrast with Ned, where she kind of has that personal gritty element to it of reacting to the slight in a way that Ned would would probably never admit to himself he was, you mm-hmm. know, kind of what we were discussing earlier. Um, but I also love Arya seeing it for what it is. She's seeing the people for the the deaths there as compared to the political machinations of what's going on. Gregor gets people sent after him because he broke the king's peace because we can come up with a justification. Jamie doesn't because we can't. She doesn't care about that. She cares about the people she knows who died. Yeah, I will say that Arya brings a uh, a very grounded sense of of reality to situations, especially things like this. She may be very young, but at the same time, she feels things deeply and personally. And and mm-hmm. I I like that. I get that there's all these politics going on. I get that there's all this this Game of Thrones, uh, who's <laughs> getting to control what. But with that said, like harm is harm. No wonder, you know. It makes sense, to, like like the sort of I'm sure generation before, and by that I mean a lot, but like the you know tribes I'm sure used to exist, and they had to be united, and they existed because this type of you know personal attack would happen regularly, as it still does clearly. So just interesting right. from that. With that said, Sansa and Arya, as as glad as Sansa was to see Arya to begin with, uh, they immediately start uh, kind of sniping at each other to the extent that Arya then throws a peeled orange. Uh, at Sansa's face yeah at Sansa's face and sort of hits her right in the face and ruins her dress and uh and Septimore Dane is there saying oh you know we're gonna your father is gonna hear about this and everybody you're yeah. both gonna get in trouble and Sansa finds that unfair and there's actually in, in a moment Ned will show up into this situation but there was a quick moment that I wanted to mention above that which is uh Sansa for a moment thought that lady was still with her and that's sort of like this is what I was her her diary. Yeah, yeah. So she's a sweet little moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's notable that so she she kind of runs off after her dress gets ruined and cries herself to sleep, and she has this dream of lady. And I think it's notable following so quickly on the heels of Sansa talking about the prophetic nature of dreams. Uh, and it's very brief. It's just lady. Uh, they were running together, and then as she slowly comes out of sleep, lady is in the room with her, looking at her, sad and knowing. And that's really all we get. Um, but that contrast with earlier when she insists on inventing a dream so that people will believe her, that kind of one-two between those, I find, I think is worth noting. Things start to happen very quick. The chapter is very close to an end, but it's basically Septim Ordain says, your father's going to hear about this. Uh, and sure enough, Ned arrives shortly thereafter. 
Uh, and Ned is there to bring some hard news to his daughters, mm-hmm. at least to one of them. Uh, what he says is, I'm sending you both back to Winterfell. Uh, it's too dangerous here. There's too much going on. We don't have enough guards right now to protect everybody to the extent that I want. And I've waited long enough. I need to get you guys out of here, especially with everything that I've just done. Um, you know, Sansa basically says, you can't do this to me. Uh, they both do, frankly. Right? Uh, they both have the same instant reaction. Ned has a remark of it's nice to see something gets you guys to agree with each other, which I think is fun. Uh, but yeah, Arya doesn't want to leave because she wants to keep doing her dancing lessons. Right. And Sansa doesn't leave for a bunch of reasons, but because she wants to marry Joffrey. And I'll actually mention, because I, I, I'm i sorry, I, I missed it and meant to bring it up. But before Ned even mentions going back to Winterfell, Arya actually stands up and says, I'm so sorry for what I did. Let me, I'll, I'll try to fix this dress. I'll let me wash it. I, she clearly yeah. doesn't understand what staining is, <laughs> but like. But I just thought that was a great turn of character for her. And I wonder if they came from dance lessons or from the last conversation she had with her father, where he was saying, you really, you need to work on having a relationship yeah. with your sister. Yeah, um, that's probably a great call. The last interaction we saw between her and Ned was him saying, figure this out. And now she's getting dragged in front of him because she threw a fruit at her sister. It makes sense that her first reaction would be, I'm so sorry. Right. I. Uh, with that said, then Ned says, I'm sending you both back to Winterfell for everything that we just talked about. Uh, and, you know, like you said, Arya says, I don't want to leave. Can can we take Sirio back with us? Uh, yeah. Sirio which Ned out. says, sure. Yeah, he's uh, like, great if he wants to come. Which, yeah. Great. Uh, however, Sansa really loses it a little bit and she's yelling about stories. And, and Ned says, look, I'm going to marry I'm going to marry you to somebody who's of great honor and wealth and all of that. But this is a mistake. We can't. Joffrey's not the man. And she says, no, he is. He's the man for me. I don't want anybody else. I don't want the, the way else. she says this is my final example of things. And I, I love this line. So I just have to highlight Ned says, I'm going to find you a match. It's going to be a great match. I'm going to find you somewhere, someone brave and gentle. And Sansa says, I don't want someone brave and gentle. I want him, right. which is like such a perfect little dagger on yeah. some level. You know who this kid is. You know that his reaction after the fight with the direwolves, his reaction uh, not walking you home after feast, these things are much closer to who he is as a person. And you just are trying to ignore it. There's a few parts of the lines here that I really wanted to mention because I think they're important. Sansa is saying, <laughs> I really want to be with Joffrey. Him, no one else. I don't want, you know, exactly what you were saying. I don't want brave. I don't want gentle. I want him. And uh, one day, this is what she says, I'll give him a son with golden hair, and one day he'll be the king of the realm, the greatest king that ever was, as brave as the wolf and as proud as the lion. To which Arya says, it's not, he's not even a lion. He's a stag, like like Robert's kid. To which Sansa screams back, he is not, he's not the least bit like that drunken old king. To which Ned looked at her strangely gods he swore out of the mouth of babes <laughs> it's such a great way for him to put this together you don't have you know i read uh what was it angels and demons was the name of that book years ago like back when it came out the, the okay. dan brown yeah the dan brown book and it, it was you know it's like a beach read everybody knows uh, the, the style of this i was like in middle school or something that I remember jesus the thing gets that really... crucified at the end like we all know the spoiler that's actually a different book michael oh, okay. uh <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> 
but my big problem with that book, I still remember this when I was reading it, was it was like a mystery kind of, it was like a detective story almost. And every single thing was the detective sits around and thinks really hard about it. And he right. thinks really hard about it. And then it clicked. And I was like, well, that sucks. Like there weren't any clues for the reader. He didn't like find anything. It was just him thinking really hard until he figured it out. And so to have this where it's not that Ned spent enough time staring at the book. It's not right. Ned went to the brothel one more time and saw the baby. It's Sansa said it out loud without even realizing what the hell she was talking about. So with that said, I actually want to pause on that part of the conversation for the next chapter as we get into it. Although I want you to know okay, that yeah. the fanfare is like loaded behind <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've got like <laughs> trumpets and rockets. Okay. But anyway, clearly Ned catches. You pull out a marching band during this recording. <laughs> They're going to come to you. Um, but with that said, clearly Ned is struck by something here. We'll go more into this in the next chapter. Uh, but basically he shuts it down and he says, you're going back whether you like it or not. Uh, and Arya tries to, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it is Arya. Arya tries to be comforting to a certain extent. She says, hey, you know, we're going to get to see Rob and Bran and Old Nan and Hodor, to which Sansa is losing it. She's Hodor. You should marry Hodor, you stupid and hairy and ugly, just like him. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. that's kind of how the chapter ends. Uh, you know, she leaves and go runs her room and closes the door. But but that's the end of that chapter. Um, I, I don't have much more to add to this chapter because all of this chapter seems to really be about the lines that we were just talking about. It's a, it's a pretty straight arrow into the next one, Yeah, uh, which is why I wanted to read them together. Like these two go together fully. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we can we can hold off on our little mini wrap up until the end here. Because uh, there's nowhere for it to take us other than straight into Ned 12. Yeah. So Ned 12, uh, let's jump right in. I. This is, well, it's Ned. I, I'm not going to give a <laughs> summary. Let's just jump right into it because it's more yeah, fun let's that way. Do it. We start with Ned talking with uh, Grandmaster Pycel, mostly about his pain. Uh, clearly he's still in pain and he's trying to figure out how to deal with it. He doesn't want to have foggy brain with the milk of the poppy, but instead I think he calls for drinks, right? He's like, I'll, I'll drink. Yeah, I'll get drunk. Like They like have a, a fun ahead. exchange here since we were talking about Pycelle's possible incompetence, possible mm -hmm. corruptness last week, uh, where Pycelle says, you should have milk of the poppy. Sleep is the great healer. And Ned says, I had hoped that was you. Uh, <laughs> so we don't usually get sarcasm from Ned, um, but that's a fun little moment where he's just like, God, this guy fucking sucks. Pycelle also shares, uh, you know, the, the, like a raven came for Cersei like last night and he kind of shares what was in it saying that it's about Lord Tywin and his reaction to finding out what's happening with Gregor. Right. Again, you he's know, all these decisions, he's angry. Uh, and basically Ned says like, like this is not any of their business. Uh, and he kind of also makes a remark that uh, as Grand Maester Pycelle leaves, he's like, I'm sure that he's now going back to Cersei to tell right. her what my reaction was, as I'm sure that Cersei had told him to tell me what was in that letter yeah and it's fun to see ned kind of coming to that conclusion here right after the discussion we had with the court scene last week where picel was either being really dumb or mm -hmm. very obviously putting forward lannister interests and it seems ned at least has decided it's the latter um i also just want to uh, not correct but add some context there ned's response to send back to cersei and presumably to tywin is 
specifically, Lord Barrick has is under the king's authority. If you want to take issue with that, if you want to get violent with Lord Barrick, I bet Robert will be perfectly happy to come kick the crap out of you and boot the Lannisters out of the realm. And then he kind of thinks to himself, God, I hope that's true. But uh, mm. <laughs> it's like, again, just another moment where you got to call him out. Ned is making politically smart moves here. You yep. guys should draw back. You should pull back and be done with this because Robert... I'm going to try to push Robert to not be okay with any sort of insubordination in this context. With that, Pycelle leaves. Uh, and Ned takes a moment to reflect on the lines we were just talking about from Sansa's chapter. Uh, he's not the least bit like that old drunken king. And we really, this will become flesh out more and more as this chapter goes. But we realize that this is what John Aaron must have found. This is mm -hmm. what they were looking at. And I can't tell you how wonderful I think this moment is. And again, I, I, I realize I'm going to give away a little bit more here as it's, even though it's giving well, do away. Do you want to take a moment and just chat about this here and kind of talk about the evidence that I've built up to this point? I think yes. now's as good a time as any. I think so. So Michael, too. why don't you tell us what it is that Ned figured out and, uh, and how that ties into some of the things we've found before? Well, Dan... I feel like I've been saying it for eight. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you what, did come up with it pretty early. I'll give you that. What what we found out and and the sort of, is the sort of final nail in this wonderful coffin that Ned's been building, uh, which is this is what the secret is. These kids can't be Robert, you know, Baratheons because they literally look nothing like him. And in fact, now as we start to see it this way we realize that all of the bastards that we've seen of Roberts look identical to him. And in fact, he'll right. talk about it more in this, but as he looks at that big book of lineages that he kind of took that John Aaron had been looking at, we find that anytime a Baratheon is with anybody who's more fair or anything like that, the kids are Baratheon looking, no doubt. Black hair every time, the, the gold yields to the coal. The seed is strong, Dan. These are John Aaron's last words, and this yep. is clearly what he's talking about. Um, so I want to mention here, your the, the one point that you missed when you were coming up with your theory uh, back when was the hair color and mm -hmm. the looks. Uh, you kind of danced around it a little bit. But I want to take this moment to say every time we've met one of these bastards or had it come up, I made a point to mention the hair color, which is talked about <laughs> constantly. Uh, and also to mention every time they talk about Joffrey being a golden-haired princeling and all of that stuff every time because it is constant throughout this book. Uh, one piece of possible evidence that we don't know yet but that i just want to draw to your attention we met one other bastard that was not identified to parents of any kind with black hair maya stone catlin's ah. escort in the veil and we know robert's first kid in the veil when he and ned were there he had a baby girl so we don't have confirmation on that but it oh, was coming up right around the same time these hints were dropped here and then possibly also in Catelyn's chapters as well, where that was showing up too. I was actually really nervous as you mentioned a bastard who had dark hair. Uh, John Snow. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> uh, no, the, the one other thing I wanted to mention here now that we've come to this point of realization was in Arya's first chapter, when she goes and watches Joffrey fight in the yard. Mm -hmm. uh, with John, you had some comments when we recorded that one about um, how the Lannisters really seem to be everywhere around the king. 
Mm. and how there really weren't Baratheons. And you actually referred to Joffrey as a Lannister. And I was like, we're like three chapters in. You've got to be kidding me right now. Uh, But thankfully, you walked that back for a little while longer until you came to it. But so credit where credit is due. Uh, You puzzled this one out quicker than Ned did, that's for sure. Well, and I'll say, well, you know, what's funny is that I didn't. uh, And I thought I I, want to give like a lot of credit to George R. R. Martin. I think that this was such a fun romp of a mystery because as I followed what Ned was looking at, I kept feeling like there's something. I felt like there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, these are things that are mentioned all the time. And in fact, we know that John Aaron saw the, you know, the bastard who was at the Smithy or whatever it was and really spent time looking at him. Right. And it's like, in my mind, I'm like, why? He looks like the king. What's the problem there? I thinking hair color features are such a descriptive thing but not something that i would think of as a clue right. uh and and i think that's true so you did, not just for the book but just in in general in life you did theorize that possibly part of this or possibly part of cersei's mm-hmm. uh motivations had to do or john aaron's motivations or somebody's had to do with lineages and yeah. inheritance specifically so i think that should be highlighted here uh and is worth talking about again it comes up later in this chapter, all three of the kids, Joffrey, Tom, and Marcella, are all Jamie's. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are all blonde. So based on this little biology class that Ned is conducting, that has to be the case. So Robert does not have a child heir. But you know who that makes the heir? Me? Not you. Uh, Robert doesn't have a child heir. Who does that make the heir? Wouldn't it be one of his bastards then? No, no, bastards don't. Bastards can't inherit. Would it? Would it be Ned? No, I have no also idea. no. It's Stannis. It's oh. his younger brother. So we have a situation where John Aaron and Stannis are investigating this. Figure oh. it out. John Aaron dies, and Stannis leaves and is now gathering an army. Right. So if Joffrey and Tommen are illegitimate and cannot inherit the throne, they're not Robert's kids. Stannis, Stannis is now the heir apparent. So we've been talking a lot about motivations of different characters. This realization helps bring that puzzle piece into place, at least with respect to one of the factions, one of the people. We know Renly is still around here. It's not clear what he knows or what he's involved in. We still have no idea what Varys or Littlefinger are up to or these other players. But Stannis in particular seems to, we can assume, if John Aaron figured it out, Stannis figured it out too, and now knows that he has a direct claim on the throne if Robert were to die. I wonder too, and, and I don't think it's ever mentioned, but I wonder if Tywin is aware of this situation. Uh, you know, who's it's a great question. You know, because I know that Jamie and, and and Cersei keep it pretty close to the vest. Uh you know, when it comes to the, their kid, what we now know is very 100% their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I don't think Tyrion's aware of it directly. You know, I think he has his suspicions. In certain He's never ways. referenced the children. No, but uh, he, he definitely has a, a, a clear About them look. sleeping together. Yeah. I, well, I think right, is, exactly. is, is the conclusion that we can draw so far as he has some suspicions on that front. Whether he's then taken that next step is another question. With all of that said, uh, this was a really fun mystery and a really fun reveal to it as well. I think that, you know, yeah, that all the hints were there. And I think I bit at all the hints and I had my own assumptions, but it never occurred to me to think so directly like this. And I like that, like you were saying, in contrast with the Dan Brown book, right? Like this was solvable <laughs> to yeah. the reader. 
uh, I did not solve it. I had guesses. You know what I mean? I made my assumptions. Your, but... your guesses were pretty on point. I, I think you're yeah. not giving yourself quite enough credit here. Uh, you, there was a recording a little while back where you kind of laid it out 90% of the way. Hmm. Um, and we're, we're just kind of missing that last piece. And I tried my best to throw you off the trail, um, but you ignored me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's been good. So yeah, so Ned's thinking about it to himself. And I think where we left off to move back to the narrative here is yeah. Littlefinger stops by. Yeah, and so yeah, so Ned's thinking about this to himself, and then Littlefinger comes in and drops in after uh the Grand Maester had left. Uh and is basically being a little finger, right? Like he's just <laughs> sort of like questioning and asking things and whatever it might be. Uh he mentions Littlefinger mentions, you know, that the realm grows restive. You need to heal quickly. The realm's getting itchy. Varys is saying that people are chatting. We have free riders being called to Casterly Rock. Uh, things are getting ready to spark. And I think it reminds me back to our two mystery characters, Lirio and other character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, war's about to break. Think, yeah. The dam's about to burst. There's a. It's worth noting that this is the umpteenth time we've heard a reference to the Lannisters gathering armies. Uh, we know the Riverlands are doing the same. We've heard the references to Lysa and Stannis doing the same. We just have a lot of fighting men massing and getting ready to go out on campaign. Yeah. I, and I, I love, like I said, it, and I'll say it again, I really love this line from, from Varys, which is the realm grows restive. Clearly things are little finger. Yeah. Yeah. Varys, right? Varys. Lord Varys. Little finger. Baelish. Baelish. Varus is somebody else. Who can keep track? (laughs) I, with that said, Littlefinger also mentions that uh, part of the hunting party has returned. Mm -hmm. Uh, This includes Joffrey, the Royces, uh, Balan Swan, and a whole like group of other people. So the king is still out there uh, with some people. We also get news that you know the hunt didn't go his way, but now he heard that there's another thing to hunt out there. No, oh, it seems to specifically they found the white heart. The white heart was torn to shreds and eaten by wolves. By wolves. So I think this is a little uh, bookend uh, with the dire wolf having been killed by a stag's horn mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning. So you have to wonder what this is foreshadowing here in terms of uh, what's going to happen between Ned and Robert when he comes back to the city. Dun dun dun. But he uh, heard there was a monstrous boar deeper in the forest. So they're going after that. But most people left, it seems. They talk more about uh, the decisions that were made at court recently about Gregor Clegane. Uh, ne- you know, Littlefinger says, you know, man, don't don't you worry that the hound is going to be pissed. You yeah. know, Sandra Clegane is going to be pissed. And, and Ned says, well, anybody could see that he hated his brother. And Littlefinger points out that it, it, Grigor was his to hate, <laughs> his yeah. to loathe, not yeah, yours I think to he, uh, I, I think it's n- maybe not what Littlefinger is saying precisely that it was his to hate, but maybe it was Sanders to kill specifically. And the idea of somebody else going out to bring Gregor to justice would not sit well with him. I think he wanted to get that job. I... Ned kind of debates a little bit about how much he wants to share with Littlefinger about his new revelation. Uh, he finds, you know, he kind of weighs it a bit. He knows that Littlefinger has been helpful, keeping uh, Catelyn sort of hidden when she was there earlier. 
but at the same time, he seems to be playing his own game. He kind of goes, Ned continues in his own mind, thinking about all the different people around him and realizes that he's pretty short staffed without a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he's just sent a lot of his men away. He knows, you know, and this is his thoughts now, right? Like, like Varys kind of tends to his own and does his own thing. Littlefinger is sort of on the fence about whose side he's on. Nobody can really tell. Pycelle seems super in Cersei's pocket. Right. And Sir Barristan is just old. Yeah. Uh, you know, so what? Who who's there to trust and rely upon? We also get a note a little later in the chapter, but I think it's worth mentioning here that now he sent half his guard away. He also committed guys to the Red Cloaks, the City Guard, um, excuse me, Gold Cloaks to the City Guard earlier in the book and now with jory dead and alan gone with lord barrack fat tom is now the head of his guard which he Mm -hmm. thinks is probably not great um he declines to call him fat tom himself but he does acknowledge that that's what the kids call him Mm. not a wonderful sign for ned's secret service regiment right and we talked about this This was pointed out ages and ages ago right where i think it was even littlefinger who was like man like you have to understand that everybody here is working on building up their own you know web of intelligence and and Mm -hmm. people to support them. And and Ned doesn't have that here, Uh, perhaps by, you know, for being a poor politician, perhaps by virtue of just not being there for that long right now. Right. Uh, I do think in the poor politician pot, at least towards that end, he keeps using his men for these things that he doesn't have to. His men could stay his men and he could be using Lannister men to do these other things. You know, it's probably not to go bring Gregor Clegane to justice, but you think of something like city police force during the tournament that very easily could have been, okay, by virtue of my role as Hand of the King, I am committing Renly's men. I am committing Lannister men to go do that. You guys are now all seconded. Uh, And choosing not to do that has weakened him significantly. Ned continues to think a little bit, and he comes to a realization that's very hard for him, which is that he realizes that King Robert Baratheon is going to kill these children when he tells yes. when Ned tells him about this situation. He says there's no way around it. And and something something about this actually like expanded upon something else that's been going on, right? Ned has put his foot down saying, We don't kill children. And this has been a big argument with his and him and the king. But I'm realizing that this is more of a, a, a totality for Ned than it is just a situational thing. This isn't just about Daenerys right. and being a kid or, you know, about war. But this is like, do not kill kids, period. Right. And he starts to think, well, I can't allow this to happen. I can't allow. Not the, again. Not again. Uh, and so he he makes a call. He uh, he he goes he goes to the Godswoods and he turns to whatever the guy's name is, Fat Tom. Yeah. And uh, and says, give this, please send this letter to the person it's addressed to. Yeah. Who we find out. Go ahead. I'll I was just going to say, I think it's uh, it's notable here how much of a motivating source, how much of a fundamental aspect of Ned's personality and worldview the war seems to be and specifically the death of Rhaegar's children which is what Mm -hmm. I was referring to when I said he can't let it happen again because this is what he thinks about Uh, he dreamed of Rhaegar's kids the night before Mm -hmm. and specifically them being laid bloodied and destroyed before the throne and that was kind of such a moment for him that we've heard about so many times before where he said what were we doing this for we're not the good guys you can't murder babies and be the good guys we didn't solve the problem of the mad king we just created new roberts and neds who hate us for doing this the 
Danny, we saw it from her perspective, thinking about them as the usurpers. Um, and uh, and we know that there are houses that were loyal to the Targaryens during that war who maybe have similar thoughts. Um, and he thinks to himself during the, the part of this thought process, the realm could not withstand a second mad king, another dance of blood and vengeance. He must find some way to save the children. There's no better way. It's not it's about the kids, and that is so fundamental to him, but it's not just about the kids. There's no better way to guarantee a Lannister uprising than the murder of these three children mm -hmm. in response for whatever crime. There's no better way to guarantee Tywin's not leaving. Tywin's going to bring his army and come attack everybody. And this is Ned's driving instinct is to prevent that type of bloodshed, the murder of innocence that leads to this cycle of violence. He wants to cut that off at the source. Well. In true Ned fashion, that's a very honorable thing to be thinking about. And in true Ned fashion, he pursues an honorable route and he passes after being taken to the God's Woods by Fat Tom. He passes Tom a letter and he says, please deliver this. And we find who should approach after being called by this letter is Cersei. Uh, she's come alone, just as the letter has asked. And they sit here in this woods and they have a conversation together, which I think is... I. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I really think this conversation is my favorite conversation so far, my favorite bit of dialogue in this book. I, I think yeah. that it's it's a beautiful piece of writing, and I think it's a really uh, honest for bo from both character sides, and, and, I, and I really adored it. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. They, and that's, you know, it, 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 I'll say to anybody who's listening, it really is a beautiful piece, and, and I recommend it to anybody, I, but and I'll try to touch on some of it. I'm not going to get into every like piece here, but yeah, we don't know, need to read it word for word, but they, they speak ahead. very civilly. Ned starts by kind of, you know, showing some, some sympathy for, for the huge bruise, which is still healing on her face that was given to her by, uh, by, by Robert. Um, yeah. and Ned, Ned jumps, really jumps right into what he's found. And it seems to me, and again, I'm jumping around a little bit in time here. There's plenty that's, that's talked about. But Ned, going off of what we were just talking about, is basically he's come to the decision. He's going to tell the king the truth. These are Jamie and Cersei's kids, not Cersei and Robert Baratheon. Mm -hmm. With that, he's afraid the king's going to kill these kids. So he's talking to Cersei now saying, get your kids out of here. Go to the free towns, the free cities. Like, go, yeah. go run away and escape. Uh, while there's time, because the moment that Robert comes back, I'm telling him, and I want you to protect these kids. Yeah, that's how he's going to prevent the murders. And that's the, the decision that he's made here, that he's going to give her advance warning of his plans so that she has time to get away. I'll add that uh, Cersei's response is, I think, kind of wonderful, which is that she kind of points and says, I. Well, I'll, I'll quote this line from the very end of the chapter, which is, she says, uh, when, when you play the game of thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. I think that while Ned continues to work to be the most honorable person that he can be, uh, he's not the most political or politically astute person in the room. And it sounds like Cersei right. has really been aware of this potential that could be happening for some time. There's not clear there's not clarity about what she's doing or what's about to happen or anything like that but that said she's she's pretty blunt about the situation she's happy to admit to what ned's sort of found out and she comes out about it 
uh, and 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 very directly. She talks about. I, I think it's really important. Uh, you know, Ned Ned asks during this conversation. He says, "Man, how did you find a way to avoid having yeah. a Baratheon kid all this time?" And she says, "You know, well, he's drunk more times than not. There's many ways to please a man which don't involve conception." And on top of that, I, you know, basically like I, it, it did happen once and I got one. rid yeah. of it. Uh, we, we, we got rid of it. And so she asked, Ned, Ned kind of asked that at some point, he says, you know, what, what did he do to make you hate him? And she says, our first night, our wedding night, we're in bed together. And he called me your sister's name. Yeah. And like, I think Oof. this is, this is why I wanted to mention Ned's kind of trauma surrounding Rhaegar's children because this here we've talked about it so much this is Robert's trauma losing Lyanna is this grief that he's never dealt with that he's never even fully acknowledged to himself what it means and he's never found a way to internalize it and we've talked so much about would Robert have been able to have a marriage that didn't look like this with Lyanna or with somebody else and how much of this is of his own making and here we see a hundred percent not that it was intentional, not that he was trying to mistreat her, but that he was trying to deal with his pain and he got too drunk and the wrong name came out. And, you know, her response, a young girl newly married to the new king, uh, probably somewhat excited about the prospect and the potential of that. And he just torpedoed that right off the bat because he has never been able to deal with what was taken from him. And I think that that's so heartbreaking. That's so sad, both for, I mean, this is Ned's response. I don't, I don't know which of you I pity most. Yeah. I did have a question, Mark, actually, right. The line before he says that, but right after she, Cersei mentions the the words of, you know, being called Liana in bed, uh, Ned Stark thought of blue, of pale blue roses for a moment. And he wanted to weep. Is that from something? I assume that's a Liana reference, but I'm not sure why or where. So the blue roses were in her, in the room, wherever it is that he found her dying. Ah, okay. uh, so we got a reference to that in the Tower of Joy sequence right. um, that we discussed, I believe, two weeks ago, two chapters, two episodes ago, rather. And uh, and so that's a, a reference to her being dead. He hears her name and kind of flashes back to that context. So I don't have much more to add about this chapter. I mean, this is really how it ends, is with them kind of both showing their hands a little bit. Uh and, and, yeah, and there's having two a more frank discussion. Yeah, go ahead. What else parts of this discussion that I want to highlight. The first one, there's this exchange towards the end that I actually don't really like from a writing perspective, but I do feel like it needs to be mentioned. She tries to seduce Ned and she yeah. offers him rulership. And it, you know, there's a justification to it that it's almost like a desperation play. She's trying to use the tools that she has, but it, it, grates at me because it's so in contrast with the rest of the scene which is confident and honest and for her to pivot in a way that she must know will fail that she must know honorable ned stark is not going to seize the throne and become her consort to rule in joffrey's place and so it's strange to me that she would even try it but it does lead to a great exchange where you know he mentions the word honor as a reference to her line after the slap and she calls him out she says, how are you any different from me or from Jamie or from Robert? You have a bastard. Who was who was the bastard's mother? Some Dornish peasant you raped while her holdfast burned? A whore? The grieving sister, the Lady Ashara? She threw herself into the sea, I'm told. Was it for her dead brother or for the bastard you stole? Uh, and that reaction is so honest, so human. Who are you to call me out 
on who I am and the mistakes I've made when your mistakes are right there for people to see too. Um, and that's response. That was very simple for a start. I do not kill children, which goes back to what you were talking about. There doesn't have to be this gulf of a difference between honorable Ned Stark and the other members of this martial community that operate in the way, way that they are, but he does have a moral bright line that he will not cross. Yeah. Did you say there was a second thing you wanted to bring up to? Yeah, the one other one was just, uh, it relates to the Game of Thrones line because Cersei has a response here. And this is a perfect segue into our wrap-up discussion because I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, Ned says, you need to flee. Bring Tywin and Jamie with you. Bring lots of money because Robert's wrath will follow you anywhere you go. And Cersei looks at him and says, and what of my wrath, Lord Stark? Mm. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. What's Cersei's next step? Does she have, is this communicating something? Does she have a plan? I mean, she's being very honest here with him in terms right. of, yep, they're my kids. What's she doing? Well, part of me thinks that Ned's just five steps behind. Like, like that. And and I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little torn here. Like, like Cersei has been the politician in this book. Right. Uh, and I think in the best, in the best and most interesting of ways, Ned has not, you know, there's other politicians playing too, but like Ned is not necessarily one of them. I think that by virtue of Cersei's ease of sharing this situation and the realities and truths of it, she must already have another plan. Similar to what we saw with Tyrion and Braun in the last chapter that we just read with him, right? Like right. he's cheering loudly and saying, let's, let's get these bad guys to find us. He already has a plan. He knows what he's doing. You know, he's not sharing all of it right away. So part of me thinks that that there's more brewing than yeah. than Ned is aware of. Yeah, no, I think uh, that makes sense. I was curious if you had any thoughts on to what that plan was, but it sounds like no. I, no, I, I don't know. I will say that something that we've talked about before, although I don't know if I believe it or feel this way, but something that we have touched on before is how much is Robert Baratheon a party to Lannister intrigue going on. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, maybe maybe he doesn't know about the kids or maybe he doesn't, you know, know some of the specifics here, but perhaps he's he's actually a little more biased towards Lannisters than Ned wants to accept or believe. Um but whatever it might be, the fact is is like like it wouldn't surprise me if the next chapter opens with Cersei, you know, holding a detonator being like I put bombs <laughs> you know, throughout this <laughs> castle, you know what I mean? She's just seems yeah. that far ahead. She's just not, okay, yeah. not concerned at this point. Yeah. The Robert uh, idea is interesting because, you know, this, no matter how intertwined with the Lannisters he is, this is a pretty direct slight on his honor. And mm -hmm. he's, ex he's expressed some antipathy towards the Lannisters generally before, but we also do have him continually appointing them and, you know, doing what Cersei's looking for, putting Jamie in the warden of the East with Tywin as the Warden of the West, there are aspects where, you know, maybe this is a realization he can't accept and has to find some sort of negotiated solution with Cersei, but maybe he won't have the violent reaction that Ned is predicting here, uh, and Cersei knows that he won't. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, so that's kind of my thought right now. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I have faith that Cersei's already planned for it. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I kind of am you know, from the other side, I expect Ned to be shocked. <laughs> uh, I expect Ned's not going to enjoy anything that's about. He's to not going to be waiting for Robert to get back, inform him, and then win. 
Yeah. Like, or he might <laughs> think he's about to win, right? Like, like it's, yeah. it just doesn't seem given the way everything's gone so far. I just don't see Ned in a positive position right now at all. Even sense. though he discovered this, this information. Yeah. All right. Any, uh, any final additions before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. I, I just, uh, I was really glad to get to the the answer of that. I'm still dying to know who the second person was with Illyrio. Mm-hmm. I, and I keep thinking about that, but, but other than that, I'm just, I, I think the only other thing that's on my mind that, that is from an even previous chapter is Tyrion and Baelish and the knife. Right. Uh, something that Tyrion had, had thought at one point, And I was just thinking about this is that it felt like there is some other team playing an invisible team somewhere on this, you know, in this match. Uh, Interesting thought. We'll we'll have to keep an eye out. Yeah. And so I was just like, huh, I wonder if Baelish is part of that team. If Baelish has some relationship to Illyrio or this mystery person or something like if, if maybe that might be some of Baelish's uh, motivations for the dagger and, and helping with this, you know, the Mm -hmm. the, the cell sword to try to kill Bran at some point, but that's, that's all I got. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, uh, next time we're going to be taking two chapters. We are going back across the narrow sea to go visit Danny, Danny five, and then Ned 13. So we'll see the follow-up to this conversation with Cersei as well, presumably. Amazing. Well, looking forward to it. I'll talk to you then. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones, Danny 5, and Ned 13. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And feel free to let us know your feedback or thoughts on Twitter at Bros with Banners. Thanks, as always, for listening.